It was reported at that time, back of the gender pay gap, that a senior member of staff also said the gender pay gap was, quote, really, really horrible. And also, another quote was, in the world of sucking at pay gap, we made the finals, showing that it was clearly an issue they wanted to address, which is hugely admirable. Shortly after the report, there was a presentation was given which included a statement that it wanted to obliterate its reputation for being full of straight white men. And Joe Wallace was a member who did the presentation, deliberately introduced herself as a gay woman. The content of the presentation that led was controversial, and there was a number of complaints that were raised with HR. The presentation was biased against straight white men, and it led to a heated discussion with what turned out to be the two claimants in this case. When it comes a huge surprise to you, but subsequently to the presentation, the business decided to undergo a redundancy process, and I think you can see where this is going, a pool was identified, which the claimants and three other people who'd raised complaints to HR about the content of the presentation were included in a pool of redundancy. Furthermore, initially there was a female creative included in the pool for redundancy, but she was subsequently removed because she was a woman. So, as you would envisage, there are a number of tribunal claims were brought and the Employment Tribunal accepted the desire to present a positive vision of diversity in practice and reduce the pay gap was, a, was legitimate and was admirable by the business. However, the reason for the claimant's dismissal was on grounds of sex discrimination, and they also upheld grounds for harassment related to sex, victimisation and unfair dismissal. So this is a, a case of quite extreme circumstances and extreme consequences off the back of the gender pay gap, but shows sort of how, how not to do it. And the reason for that is that they were trying to overnight almost completely revamp the demographic of not only their business, but also the industry. It resulted in them alienating a group of straight white men, and the law is in place to stop such action taking place. So if you're looking at making changes because of a lack of diversity, then it needs to be gradual. The purpose of this is to level the playing field and make opportunities available, removing barriers and support in place to facilitate and assist that gradual development. If there's opportunities to get quick wins, then that's fine. But obviously, you've just got to think about these consequences and these pitfalls when looking at it. So just looking at that in a bit more detail, businesses can put in place positive actions for certain groups. 10, potentially women and ethnic minorities, to correct underrepresentation and compensate for the disadvantages. There are two positive action provisions that you can rely upon. There's a general positive action rule where a particular characteristic or disadvantage, proportionate measures to encourage persons to overcome the disadvantage participation. So you can put in place plans to do that. And I'll go into a bit more detail what some companies have done. And then positive action in recruitment. So where an employee reasonably thinks that persons with a particular protected characteristic are disadvantaged or proportionally underrepresented, can treat people more favorably than others in recruitment or promotion as long as the person is as qualified as those others. So the issue at that point is that it's rarely the case that both individuals are as qualified. And in that situation, you can 
it can choose the underrepresented protected characteristic. But it does have to be with caution. But obviously what we're seeing is measures being taken. So one measure that's mentioned in a recent article by Gareth Brabham's really good article in the Employment Law Association briefing is that PwC banned all male shortlists for roles in the UK in an attempt to increase the number of women in senior roles. So that TSB announced in 2018 it would use a 50-50 gender shortlist for candidates to replace its CEO. And it confirmed that the gender balance shortlisting had been used for a number of years for senior roles to try and address the issue of diversity within its workforce. So these are positive measures put in place to try and offset that. But none of those changes are going to result in sweeping changes overnight, which is why it's just interesting to to learn from the pitfalls of this case and this scenario. Another case that is recently got, got some media attention, not as much as the first case, is the case of the Secretary of State for Justice and Playsto. This is a very rare case uh, and the facts are very unusual. This is an EAT decision, Employment Appeal Tribunal, that upheld an, a tribunal decision to calculate compensation for sexual orientation discrimination and harassment on the basis of career loss. So this is an individual who was 38 and they got an award all the way up to retirement on the back of this case. So it is highly unusual. It is possible in severe situations to do this, though. I've had a few cases where this has been alleged. One incident where the bullying was so severe that the individual had a complete breakdown at work, was suicidal and would never work again uh, because of the mental health issues as a result of, or partly as a result of the treatment suffered and the action suffered whilst employed. And another incident whereby somebody had a severe breakdown and a relapse in their health off the back of action taken by a company and would never work in, would also prevent it from working in a regulated industry ever again because of that action. So in those situations, it may be appropriate to look at career losses, but obviously you can see that the facts have to be quite specific. Just to go backwards, the calculation of compensation for discrimination is based on loss the claimant has suffered. Unlike unfair dismissal, there is no upper limit. There is obviously guidance as to how awards are calculated. Unlike unfair dismissal, which is capped at around 89,000 or the lower of 89,000 or 12 months earnings, and there is no cap. The aim of the award is to put the claimant in the position they would have been in had the wrong not taken place, which is why this is relevant. So let's look at the facts of this scenario as to why the award was so high. This is very much a summary and whistle-stop tour. But Mr. Playstow was as a prison officer. He transferred to a new prison, I think it was in 2014, at which point he was subject to harassment related to his sexual orientation or perceived sexual orientation, which included physical and verbal abuse. It was so intense that he asked for help and then asked for another transfer out of that prison. He raised a grievance, which wasn't investigated, and a further attempts to raise a grievance, which didn't come to fruition, he involved his MP. This then led to him being subsequently victimised as a consequence of that and had allegations of gross misconduct alleged against him. Those allegations resulted in him being terminated for gross misconduct at the age of 38. After a 27-day hearing, his claim for sexual orientation, discrimination, harassment and victimisation succeeded. He was awarded £41,000 for injury to feelings, £15,000 for aggravated damages due to the severity of the situation, 
And the same again is £8,000 for exemplary damages, which are uplifts on top of the injury to feelings. He was also awarded career loss of earnings. And this is based heavily upon the medical evidence in this case. So it was expert evidence as the impact of the injury and the likelihood to work going forward. That evidence was that he had PTSD, depression and paranoia. And the conclusion reached by the judge was that it was a lifelong condition and he was very unlikely to return to work. The judge did give a 5% reduction in case he did return to some form of employment or had he decided not to continue in that career, but only a 5% deduction was awarded on that basis. The tribunal did, however, award 20% uplift for failing to follow the ACAS code in relation to the grievance and disciplinary procedure, which is a huge sum if you think about it, obviously, career loss of earnings. The Employment Tribunal did uphold the lifelong losses, but they did refer it back to the tribunal in relation to a few other areas. But really, the main point of this is, is obviously illustrating in, in severe situations and rare circumstances, because of the severe abuse and the consequences of that abuse, that it is possible for significant tribunal awards to be made. So it's just being alert to that, making sure that you have the correct advice correct insurance and things in place if this situation was to arise. And always more than happy to discuss any concerns anybody has. But hopefully that's been helpful. I've really loved doing these podcasts and hopefully I'll get to speak to you all again soon. So all the best and thanks again. In today's main discussion, we'll be speaking about one aspect of the equality, diversity and inclusion agenda of good employment, focusing on how employers can best support, learn from and respond to their employees from ethnic minority backgrounds. We're delighted to be joined by Sharon Amesu, who's a professional speaker on inclusive recruitment, but also a very, very treasured member of the board of the Good Employment Charter. We're also joined by Urmish Patel, Head of HR at Abellio London Bus, recently recognised as a full member of the Charter. Welcome both of you and thanks for speaking on this podcast. We're really excited to hear your insights on this topic today. We've seen time and time again that diverse organisations that attract and develop individuals from the widest pool of talent consistently perform better as a result. However, the impact of COVID-19, I think, has disproportionately skewed against members of ethnic minority groups. Good employers know, however, that they need to address this issue and, and ensure that workplaces remain inclusive despite the challenges of these last 18 months or so. So turning to you first, Sharon, and, and you've done plenty of work on helping organisations create more diverse and inclusive workplaces. And feeding from that experience, can you set out ways you think employers should be supporting diversity in their organisation? Yeah, Ian, thanks very much for inviting me to join you today and for this question, because one of the things that you pointed out in the first instance is that good employers recognise the imperative around this agenda. And that's, in fact, the case. Those employers who understand that in order for their organisations to thrive, then they need to ensure that all those who make up the population of their organisations must thrive and prioritising that. 
that of primacy in this conversation. And uh, from my perspective, the organizations who do that well are the ones who recognize that engaging the conversation around diversity and inclusion is not to be regarded as a problem to be solved, but actually they see it as an opportunity to untap potential that is latent within their organization. We know that currently nationally, the Black, Asian and other racially minoritized communities make up up to 14% of the working population. And by 2030, that's set to increase. And if you contextualize that into greater Manchester, that will increase even more so. Uh, And so it's of real uh, priority for for leaders within organizations to think very carefully, how do we ensure that we continue not only to increase diversity and representation, but also make our community feel included as though they belong. And we know that COVID disproportionately impacted black and Asian members of the workforce. And there has been some inquiry into that and the import of that research, albeit that it's it's relatively cursory, really drives us to this conclusion that employers must ensure that they are having a, a culturally competent lens on the way in which they think about their employees and in thinking about um, the risk assessments that are in place to ensure that their, their people are properly protected. And then more broadly, we think about How do organizations look at the long term as far as diversity and inclusion is concerned? And recognizing that simply taking the stance of not being racist is not enough. How do we as as leaders in our organizations become positively anti-racist? And that looks like the awareness that we raise, the education that we bring in. It looks like being very intentional about our benchmarking and our ethnicity pay gap reporting. And it's very much about leaders taking the lead on this and being very ambitious and unapologetic in their vision to create a more inclusive workplace. That's wonderful. I love the culturally competent lens. That's such a lovely term, Sharon, that we need to take out there and get, particularly leaders, you're absolutely right, and and boardrooms to call things out. In your experience, Sharon, and, and boardrooms are made up largely by people like me, white, middle class, middle aged. So how do we start to empower them, those that are progressive, to call it out? How do we go about that, Sharon? Well, it starts with acknowledging that there is a business imperative to this. And I think where there is a direct nexus and there's a recognized nexus between this agenda and the performance of our organization, then that brings courage into the room because we know, we recognize that if we don't get this right, then we won't continue to thrive. And so it's very much about bringing laser focus in the boardroom on just how important this is. And also, I think there's something about raising awareness and education and skilling leaders up. I know for sure that uh, calling out 
actually is a skill and being able to hold courageous conversations around this agenda is a skill. So skill up the board members, deliver training and development so that they are aware and they are competent and they are capable to bring those challenges at the moments of truth where they arise for us in each and every occasion. Thank you, Sharon. That's really insightful and certainly something I know that the Charter Board and our partners are keen to try and address. So listeners, please watch this space. I think we will try and address some of this as we move forward. Can I turn to you, Armish? Now, Abelio have done some great work in this field, I know, through the uh, assessment process for the Charter. So ensuring the employment of really wide range of diverse employees in your organization. So what would you say to employers? What should they be doing to recruit and retain and respect the employees from ethnic minority groups? Thank you, Ian. Really important question. And, you know, I was, it was good, heartfelt to listen to the, some of the stuff that Sharon's, you know, sort of came across and said, and actually it feels good that, you know, listening to what Sharon said, and actually looking at my organization and saying, actually, we are doing some of these really good stuff. So, prime example, Abellio London, we serve across the heart of London. And London is a very diverse community. We have 58% of our workforce from ethnic background. So, I'm, I'm fairly proud of that element of it. And as employers, the key thing we do is listen to your employees. Use them as ambassadors. We have open days at our depots, at our garages, where people come in. It's about really tapping into the local community, having open days, creating the message and working with the community as well. Because without doing that, you're not really engaging. And I think one of the key messages we found during sort of COVID and so forth as well, it's about making sure that we're tapping into all channels, using our people as ambassadors converting lots of messages into everybody's language that they can understand. We even looked at the videos as well and created the videos back into different languages to make sure we're passing those key messages across. And I think that's, that's got to be the critical bit. Listen to your employees, engage with them early on and make that part of your fabric. A lot of, a lot of companies say, you know, you've got to have a DNI strategy. Absolutely have a DNI strategy, but make sure you put some real marks cornerstones, put some real markers down on the sand, unmovable markers, because unless you hold yourself accountable to it, they'll always be seen to be soft markers. The other thing we're doing as well is we're training all our senior leaders within the organization. So across the entire Abellio group, we are hosting a session where all our MDs, all directors will be attending a DNI sort of session. We're also looking at creating a train the trainer session. So all our key managers, all people managers will then be given the same level of training in DNI and making that as a thread all the way through. So there's that, some of the things that we're doing to really bring it to life. Brilliant, Ermish. I think that, that cultural embeddedness and Sharon touched on it as well. You know, the, the culture and leadership from the top is essential to drive behaviors through the organization. I'd like to know a little bit more, Armish, about how you go about recruiting and, and how you ensure that those that are attracted into the company come from a diverse background. 
Absolutely. So one of the key things for us is it's about the image. If we want to recruit people from a diverse background, all our pitches have diverse people on there because it's very much about you recruit people within the image and we want to make sure we're capturing all people from all diverse workforce. We then also look at advertising within sort of local communities, within the local press. We are doing local uh, radio advertising. We're doing sort of job boards. We've even linked up with the LGBT community as well. We've linked up with one of the other bits we're doing is we're doing reach out programs. So we're doing traineeships. So traineeships wise, we're engaging with the, the Department of Works and Pensions and we're creating sort of work placements and traineeships where we mentor people through becoming a bus driver with us give them lots of vocational skills and qualification at the same time as well, and then signpost them to our apprenticeship program. By doing that, we're engaging directly within the community and actually creating workshops. We're creating open days. We're creating webinars. We're having lots of people join those sort of sessions and actually giving a complete focus and overview of the role, what it entails, lots of Q&A sessions. And having people who are going through that program and people who've come out at the other end to give them their experience really, really resonates with people applying for some of our roles. Now that feedback loop is so important. That's really, really nice example, Lermish. Thank you. I mean, in Greater Manchester, we know we're struggling with all sorts of inequalities. We had our Inequality Commission report last year and we've had the Marmot report on health inequalities this year. And some of the challenges at Greater Manchester faces are deep-seated and they've, they've been long-term. But I think we're at a position now where hopefully there's a realisation of, of more progressive thinking towards these issues. But if you were to give, and I'll ask you, Sharon, first, if you were to give a Greater Manchester employer one piece of advice around how the bring their attention to diversity and inclusion, what would it be? It would be to connect to our DNA. It's within our DNA in Manchester and Greater Manchester to do what's right by our people. Historically, we are the origins uh, of all sorts of movements, whether it be the, the labour movement, whether it be the suffragette movement. We are connected with justice. That's within our, our history and our identity. And I would encourage all employees to reconnect with that truth as to our identity so that we can become known as a beacon uh, as a leader in this arena for future generations. Wonderful. Sharon, thank you very much. I, I think you're absolutely right. Let's hope that we're creating a good employment movement to join those others at the moment. Umish, what, what would you say to your, your Manchester colleagues from your London experience about how they can address this? What one thing would they do? I would say... Open up your opportunities, tap into the local community, because if you can recruit people directly from your local community, they will empower you as an organization. They will bring the wealth, the knowledge and the passion. And, and don't be afraid. Try something new. Be brave. Be bold. I think we've got the right place to be brave and to be bold. So that's great. 
inspiration for us. I think what I've taken from this is the cultural competence issue from Sharon and communication from Urmish that we have to be absolutely clear in our communication and clear in our message around equality, diversity and inclusion issues. Sharon and Urmish, thank you so much for your contributions to the podcast today. Really great to have you on. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And now to finish, we move on to our opinion piece. This is where an employer or a policy expert details their perspectives on good employment. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Sarah Price, Interim Chief Officer at the Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Sarah is going to reflect on the Greater Manchester Marmot Report, which was published in June this year, which talks about how we can not just build back better, but fairer also. Thanks for coming on to the podcast today, Sarah. You're very welcome. The report revealed many key findings for Greater Manchester employers to consider, particularly when developing their focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So could you maybe share with us the key messages in the report and how Greater Manchester employers can respond to the challenges ahead and help create a fairer city region? Of course. Well, it's really important to understand that that Greater Manchester has experienced inequality over generations and its recognition of that and the impact that we all can have on ensuring that people have a good outcome, health outcome particularly. And the report really picked up on that. So Michael Marmot very famously wrote a report 11 years ago now, which looked at what the underlying wider determinants of health outcome were and why there were differentials in people's experience. And that report he updated a year ago and Greater Manchester was a case study within that. And it was the 10 years on report. And it basically showed that life expectancy was beginning to stabilize. And in any kind of advanced economy, one would expect continual improvement in life expectancy. So that the the prospects for, for our residents should have been improving, but actually hadn't been. And what we've been able to do now is to look at the impact of the pandemic on our populations and see whether or not that's had further impact. And of course, the report shows very clearly that it has. So health inequality is really important because prosperity is determined by the health of your population. If you haven't got people who can do the jobs that you need to be done, who have the skills, can really benefit from their education. So all of these things have much wider impact than we often understand on on prosperity within a region. And so therefore, making sure we build back fair is really important. I mean, before 2017, the proportion of employees who are low paid in Greater Manchester was much lower than the Great Britain average, except in Salford and Manchester. And that's distorted by big business that we have in those cities. The claimant count has been increasing everywhere except Trafford and Stockport, which are the most affluent of our towns in in Greater Manchester and much bigger than the England total. And in the report, Sir Michael was able to look at 
life expectancy. And across the Northwest, it fell by 1.2 years for females and 1.6 years for males. Well, you know, in the previous hundred odd years, it's always gone up or been stable. Um, it's not gone down. And in a single year, that's unbelievable. And that compares to 0.9 for women and 1.3 for men in England as a whole. So our experience in the Northwest is so much worse. And so that pre-pandemic stalling of life expectancy, and particularly for the poorest, is actually falling. It just points to the fact that we need to intervene and make the right choices. So if we look then at what the role of business could be, what Sir Michael's suggesting is that good working conditions, fair progression, decent pay and security of work are vital to good health. And within work training, extending apprenticeships and other training schemes are really important to the, to the way we skill up the workforce at all ages so that they can contribute and ensure that we're reducing the number of people that are falling out of our system and requiring help and support. And, you know, that there's lots of different roles. Businesses can procure and deliver services and products, but if they offer potential routes to greater health equity through how their supply chains work and support healthy living and working conditions, and businesses have a really important role in scrutinizing suppliers and contracts to ensure that protect health and equity in the supply chain, there's a real role for business there in, in Greater Manchester. And this whole issue of social value businesses have a great potential to add that through their usual business practices. So things like tenders and contract awards, et cetera, can really look to seek that social value. Investing in and owning management assets that can benefit or undermine good health, divesting from assets that undermine that is a powerful lever for supporting change. You know, thriving businesses have an opportunity to really fund and support those essential services and assets for local communities. And, you know, M Michael went as far as to say that a regional investment fund to facilitate coordinated investment in building back fair might be a good thing. Something that we've looked at a lot as public sector organisations is our role as anchor institutions. You know, we're, we're big employers. We provide lots of work in, in communities. We buy products. We have the opportunity to really influence what happens. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that if we really focus on what additional developments we could do, businesses located in places have an important place shaping role. And, you know, we've all got a, a role to play in that. And it extends beyond just being employers, but being the contracting that we do and where we buy our products from. So if we can generate local business and, and those suppliers are within our area, that it provides jobs and good employment for, for those. And getting involved at a wider level in partnerships with voluntary community sector, as well as with the public sector, I think could make a big difference. So supporting staff to volunteer, giving their expertise to local communities, being advocates for greater health equity are all roles that I think business could play. Sarah, thank you very much. That's a great summary. I think the really interesting point here is that investing in good employment practice is just that. It's an investment. It's a circular thing. Good health leads to productivity. Good conditions leads to good health. And I think that's a key message for employers. And your points about broader value, social value and supply chains, I think, are well heard. 
And certainly the Good Employment Charter will work with employers to try and support how they engage with the supply chains and how we use those levers. Because I think whilst we're all committed to it and we all know it's a good thing to do, I think occasionally we do need levers to actually move things forward. And I think the Marmot Report this year has certainly given us food for thought to fuel those those actions. Sarah, thanks very much indeed for joining the podcast today. You're very welcome. And that's a wrap on this season. Thank you to all the organisations that have supported us on these episodes. And we hope they've been valuable to you personally and to your organisation. Do make sure you submit your nominations for our Good Employment Charter Awards by December 31st. More information is available on our website. So thanks for joining us this week on Good Employment Charter. Make sure you follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn for all the latest updates. Subscribe to stay tuned for our episodes. And if you found this one valuable, please leave a review and recommend it to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please do get in touch for more information. Goodbye for now.